Welcome to the Insights Podcast with Don Mills and David Campbell on the Huddle Network. This week, Don is on vacation. I had the opportunity this week to talk to Darlene Grant-Fiander, President of the Tourism Industry Association of Nova Scotia and Executive Director of the Nova Scotia Tourism Human Resources Council, about the state of the tourism industry in Nova Scotia and across Atlantic Canada. It was an excellent, excellent conversation. Tourism is a very, very important part of the regional economy. Uh, It generates about $3 billion in export revenue for the four provinces. That's people coming in to consume uh, tourism uh, products and services in our region. Um, As you will hear from the conversation, Darlene says we're still not anywhere back to where we were. Uh, in 2019 before the pandemic, although there was certainly uh, positive momentum uh, this year. Stats Canada's preliminary estimates would suggest we're down about 20% still uh, off uh, off uh, pre-pandemic highs. So still a lot of work to be done. Um, the, uh, the There's a lot on the line here, according to Stats Canada. Uh, there's about 46,000 people who directly work in tourism. Uh, across the four provinces, if you add in indirect and induced effects, is probably closer to 100,000 people uh, that uh, rely on this sector. So ensuring that it's uh, it's um, successful is important. We talked about the challenge of the workforce. Um, she talked about efforts in Nova Scotia to attract more students from across Canada and beyond, similar to what Alberta has been doing for decades, actually making the region a destination uh, for summer student employment in tourism. Uh, to take advantage of all of the great uh, tourism activities here uh, as well while they're here working. Uh, she ha- says as we move forward, we need a lot more product development, leveraging our key assets, uh, looking at things like Indigenous tourism uh, and other sort of specific themes related to culture and history. Um, she uh, also talked about the efforts and the need to attract more entrepreneurs into the sector, uh, by my estimate, somewhere around 35 to 40% of all business owners in the tourism sector are going to retire in the next 10 to 15 years. So we need to have a renewal of the tourism workforce. But as you will see, she's very optimistic about the future of the tourism sector in Atlantic Canada. She thinks the broader uh, trends toward more global tourism, toward more global experiences uh, will drive a lot more uh, tourists here uh, as long as we're making the case, building the value proposition and promoting uh, the region. So uh, I think it's worth an hour. Uh, Without any further ado, here is my conversation with Darlene Grant-Fiander, President of the Tourism Industry Association of Nova Scotia. Darlene Grant-Fiander, welcome to the Insights Podcast. Thank you, David. Happy to be here. So before we get started with the questions, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up uh, uh, running the Industry Association in Nova Scotia and the Tourism Human Resources Council? Sure. Um, Like many Canadians, actually one in three, I started my working life in a tourism job. Many of us do. Uh, We learn a lot of those important transferable skills that start us on a good path. Um, Went to university, uh, didn't didn't mindfully select tourism as a a career like many people. Um, And then after after university, continued to work in hotels and uh, more senior management positions in the in the food and beverage and development area. Um, I started with the association almost 30 years ago. And I started working in, um, actually, we launched the first rating program for Nova Scotia, the grading system, the original Nova Scotia grading system. Uh, from there, moved into uh, the human resource field, and I, I, I uh, managed the Human Resource Council. And about 12 years ago, I assumed the role as president of TIANS, which is the uh, Tourism Industry Association of Nova Scotia. And we represent the private sector, so tourism businesses all over the province. So according to Statistics Canada, before the pandemic, tourism GDP was rising year over year in Nova Scotia and actually across Atlantic Canada. I guess the first question I think we'd be interested uh, to find out is just how big a hit was the pandemic to the tourism industry in Nova Scotia and across the region? Yeah, certainly uh, globally, tourism was the hardest hit sector as a result of the pandemic. And in, in Nova Scotia was no exception. In 2019, annual revenues were uh, $2.6 billion, uh, generating about $450 million for governments and 50,000. We, ju- we had just hit 50,000 jobs in Nova Scotia. 
Um, you know, within months, we lost 30,000 jobs, uh, business almost came to a standstill, and we ended up in 2020 and 2021, just under $1 billion in revenue. So, you know, almost a 64% decline uh, in business revenue for those two years. So pretty significant, you know, when people's disposable income is affected and business stops, tourism stops and, and it stops in every community. Uh, and we don't have the privilege or, or opportunity to work from home. You know, our business relies on people coming to us and uh, the human interaction that needs to take place. So certainly, um, uh, obviously, the hardest hit sector. And now we're rebuilding. So if you look at the overall economy, all sectors combined um, in the region, it basically came back pretty strong in 2021. We had a real GDP growth of over 5%, uh, more or less making up for the big losses in 2020. And 2022 is looking pretty good. There's still some sectors that are weak. But of course, tourism is a tricky one. We're expecting a longer sort of rebound in that sector. So how has it performed? What can you tell us about how it's performed so far in 2022? 2022, um, you know, we, we've done a business confidence survey recently, and this this applies kind of to the Atlantic, the whole Atlantic region. And operators are pretty optimistic that, you know, the next three years, hopefully they'll return to 2019 levels. So Destination Canada predicts it's going to be three to four years uh, for full recovery. And again, that will depend on our ability to get those planes back in the air fully. Um, you imagine stopping a business wholeheartedly, you know, what all the airports in the country and the world, um, the transportation links were affected and certainly um, a lot of businesses furlonged. So it's going to take some time, but we're here in 2022. People are incredibly optimistic. It's been a busy summer for sure. But again, you know, tourism is just not about the summer. We have a, we need to build business and we need to have business all year long in order to kind of contribute the way we can economically. So uh, probably three to four years for recovery. We won't have the numbers for 22 until uh, obviously the new year. But uh, what we're hearing from operators is the price points have been good. The rates have been good from the accommodation perspective. Uh, the other sectors are very pleased um, in terms of what they've seen happen in their community. So much better than the last two years. Uh, but, you know, we'll see what happens. So I'm a little bit concerned about some of the numbers that regional airports, but it does look like the Halifax airport has done quite well. Can you give us a sense of what the flight situation is this year in, at the Halifax airport? Yeah, the last I heard, they're back to about 80% in the, in the peak of the summer uh, of business. But, you know, one of the ongoing concerns is uh, there are less aircrafts available and, you know, flying into all destinations. And so there's a lot more competition around the world to attract those, those airlines in. So air access and incentivizing airports to come back will be key. You know, we heard a couple of weeks ago, West just pulling out um, short term and certain certain flights, uh, some cancellations of our regional airport. So that's that's really significant. Um, so they have a lo- they'll have a lot of work to do. So, I mean, we're lucky we have such a world class airport, uh, but it is going to take some time and ongoing investment um, and to attract these flights, these airlines back because they're going to go where a the business is where people are incenting them to come in. Um, and they have, you know, we talk about labor a little bit later on, but they're having the same issues that everybody else is with pilots, uh, crews, um, ground, transportation, et cetera, in terms of, you know, being fully operational. So um, it's a significant, um, I think it'll take years before we fully understand kind of the impact of of, uh, of COVID on the tourism sector and kind of what we will look like in a few years. It's going to be a very different industry. Uh, because the industries had to learn to adapt with nothing and then adjust the way they operate with their business, with their employees, change job descriptions. Um, it'll be very different over the next few years in terms of how we function. Yeah, and I'm I'm particularly concerned about the air travel sector, particularly in this region, because we are fairly disconnected from central Canada and, and big markets. So the air air travel, particularly for conventions and other traffic, is very, very important. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand what happened in that sector. I mean, the the they, you know, the sector was growing before the pandemic. The government pumped, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into the sector to support it during the pandemic. You would think they would be able to just pull back. Now I understand they again, as you said, they had HR issues and and other challenges, but it's very strange to me that they were not prepared. They're not even back to where they were before the pandemic is what I'm trying to say. And so what they're doing is they're restricting to the markets that are most lucrative, like WestJet and Western Canada and so on. And that seems to leave our region out in the cold. 
Yeah, well, I think um, I've learned a lot, a little bit about the air, airline industry since the pandemic, because we were in, in, in contact with some of the, obviously, HIAA, but also some of the airports themselves or airlines. And, you know, understanding that when you, when you stop a plane from flying, the maintenance required, once you're allowed to fly it again, it's a, it's a multi-month duration to make sure that that airline is, airplane is safe. A lot of the crew that they had have gone on to other sectors. Uh, that's a reality. Um, in terms of where they're going to go, um, again, that's why that air access piece is key and, and, and Stanfield's uh, playing, playing an important role in, it in terms of incentivizing travel back. It's like when it comes down to it, it's a business and everybody's been very much hurt by the pandemic. So they're going to go where they're going to make money, uh, where they're treated well um, and where they, you know, obviously have crews, et cetera. So it's a, uh, it's a complicated issue. And um, in order to even maintain those planes and the crews that they've lost, et cetera. So it's uh, think about shutting that down on a dime and then trying to get it back up and running. Pretty, pretty incredible. We're at, we are where we're at, to be honest with you. Yeah. Just a little annoyed that our region seems to be on the short end of the stick there, uh, barely. Yeah. And I, and you know, what's interesting is that Atlantic Canada fought really hard for regional access. And, and over the last few years, we've done a really good job um of getting those regional routes in because it's it's not just enough for stanfield we need to be able to connect people to the communities of atlanta canada so the loss is significant and so when we hear WestJet adjusting flights sydney you know air canada canceling sydney etc it's um it's going to take some work to get that back uh, but there's a real effort to make that happen and um, but again the economic and the trade impact and the investment impact is real that's why when we talk about atlantic canada we're unique in many ways and a positive, but certainly our geography um, gives us new challenges that maybe per certain other, other destinations don't have. So it ties into our marine access and our motor coach infrastructure. How we move people throughout the region is critically important to how successful we'll be in tourism, trade, and even attracting people to live here. So before the pandemic, our region relied somewhat on American visitors. Of course, we yeah. attracted a lot of Canadians and other international visitors, but Americans were a big part of the mix. Mm -hmm. um, some of the data from Stats Canada would suggest, you know, at least a, a vehicle traffic over the border has not picked up uh, the way we would like to see. Uh, do you have any insights into us? Are the Americans coming back? How did that, the Yarmouth, uh, uh, the Yarmouth main ferry, did that pick up this year? Like, where are we with, with respect to Americans visiting our region? Uh, the last stats of tourism Nova Scotia indicate that the efforts for the, on the international side were about, were about 6%. Um, in 2019, it was 9%. So um, we don't know how the year will, will unfold. Anecdotally, uh, talking to operators, as soon as we opened up, we heard from a number of operators that there, were a lot, there was a lot of interest from the United States. Uh, Tourism Nova Scotia's marketing is in the Northeastern area, which is terrific for us. I mean, we're connected and there's a lot of interest culturally in terms of what we have to offer. So, you know, what you have, you have the fuel costs certainly is, is a factor. Uh, the unrest in the U.S., the civil, I call it civil unrest to some degree because it's a very uncertain time, the war in Ukraine and Europe that's happening. So tourism is so affected by global events and it affects people's psyche. So it's going to take a little bit of time, but it's trending towards where it was in 2019. But compared to where we were in past years, certainly not where we want to be. I believe the U.S. market is holds tremendous poten potential for the Atlantic region. Again, you have this uh, market of 350 million people, not that we'd all, they'd all be attracted to come to us, but we have stories to tell that appeal to certain markets in the U.S. And I think over the next few years with a strategic focus, um, some niche de product development, um, the, the link being consistent. I mean, you can't keep saying you're going to move the link out or it's not there or it is there. I mean, there's not many ferries or marine routes in, the, in Canada that are not subsidized to some degree and we need we're almost an island here we need to get people here so you need to value the link you need to integrate the marketing ha that happens in that area between tourism nova scotia the ferry itself uh, we need to make sure we have the product for the people um, and you know we have a tremendous potential in some areas with indigenous tourism and african nova scotia tourism i heard an interesting stat the other day that um american african uh, americans it's a it's a very large growing segment of, of the middle class in terms of having disposable income uh, they're very interested in destinations that have a story to tell and we have that story but we haven't really developed it so you know we have opportunities but we have to stop looking at things on a one-year cycle uh, four-year government cycle and think about the destination or the region in its totality like atlantic canada has tremendous potential um, you know, in terms of how we really 
redefine and reposition uh, tourism in a post-COVID environment. So you mentioned in the pre-interview that that Nova Scotia is not focusing on the Chinese market. I remember before the pandemic hit mm-hmm. in New Brunswick here, there seemed to be quite a, a, a significant share of Asian visitors. Uh, you know, if you went to places like the Hopewell Rocks and others, um, you know, the the share of the population just walking around seemed to be fairly fairly significant. There were big tour buses out in the lots. And of course, I've been to some of these tourism destinations this this summer, and there was none or very, very little. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, uh, you did say that uh, Nova Scotia is targeting uh, Germany and the UK. Maybe just a thought on why you're not targeting Asia. Is that is that sort of deliberate or you just don't think the market's there? Uh, and how are things going with those other markets like in, in, in the UK and uh, Germany? Yeah, well, so the, um, the numbers are only out for May from Tourism Nova Scotia. And I think the... Um, uh, the China market that government was getting into it heavily. There was a lot of interest in it uh, in the years leading up pre-COVID, but then COVID happened. I mean, there are many parts of China that are still on lockdown. I mean, we're not even sure really what's going on in, entirely. So I think it was a very practical decision when COVID, obviously when COVID happened, nobody was marketing overseas at all. Uh, and then reopening, where's our best opportunity? This is our first full year of uh of kind of spending money outside outside Canada, to be honest with you, um, and so they're going to you know be strategic. Where are the airline routes direct that still exist that we have good partnerships with? Because that's a key part of it. In terms of Asia and other markets, we know. I mean, when you think about uh, the future of tourism, um, you know, Latin America again, growing middle class opportunity to attract people into the region. So I think, uh, yeah, they were hung up or they were all focused on China. But I mean, it, it, it's a, it's an opportunity where that lies in the future. I think COVID has changed a lot of perceptions about that and you know what that could be. So probably tourism could answer that better. But that would be my guess is that, that you know in a post COVID environment. Right now, in terms of what's happening, even in China, it's not the place for us to be. Yeah, no doubt. I don't think they're allowing very many people out at all no. um, of China. But uh, uh, yeah, I think in maybe hopefully when everything settles down, it, 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 um, there is a middle class in China that is looking to see the world. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we're, we're part of that. The interesting thing is the most of these tour buses actually turn east. They don't turn west. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just a little mm-hmm. quirk, but uh, yeah. it, it's kind of interesting that they do hit, head toward Eastern and Atlantic yeah. Canada and not as much from Toronto West. At least that mm-hmm. was pre-pandemic the experience. There's been a lot of interesting data coming out of the pandemic. I study as an economist, I do study the data on uh, on the sector. Mm-hmm. And if you look at um, imports and exports of tourism products and services, um, New Brunswick actually had a tourism trade deficit. In other words, New Brunswickers spent more money outside the mm-hmm. province than tourists coming into the province spent in the province. Now PEI and I think Nova Scotia, depending on the year, have a have a have a surplus, so a stronger uh, trade surplus in tourism. But the pandemic sort of was a was a natural experiment where we were kind of locked down, and but we still had money to spend. And of course, initially there was we weren't even leaving our houses. But once we were started to to spend money on tourism we did see some interesting effects so the governments received a lot more hst revenue than they expected because people were forced to spend in the local market i just wanted to ask you and again it's a a little it's kind of tongue-in-cheek but we've talked a lot over the years about staycations and i know governments and other people grumble but to a tourism operator if the if the visitor comes from you know yarmouth or the visitor comes from Toronto, it's still revenue, right? They're still mm. spending money. Now we do mm-hmm. want export revenue, but if you keep tourists from leaving the province because there's all these great tourism activities in the province, that's just fine too. So I guess the I just wanted to get your thoughts on how the tourism impacted the local market. Did it obviously accommodations is problematic, but you know, did it help sort of ease the pain a little bit to have? Nova Scotians and Atlantic Canadians sort of locked in and not able to leave the leave the province? Yeah, I mean, it was a tremendous gift, to be honest with you, in terms of what happened in 2020. And what we heard from operators all over, and Atlantic Canada included, is that people that uh, had not considered a vacation in their own province uh, were blown away by some of what they saw. And they were rediscovering the area. And a lot of the rural higher-end resorts, uh, you mentioned Fox Harbor last week, they saw a lot of interest in, in locals and people rebooked for the next year. So 
I think there's a couple things that it taught us is that uh, we've ignored the domestic market in the region um, and we've just taken it for granted. We knew that 45% of people are coming here anyway, but you know, there's not many businesses that wouldn't pay attention to their customers that they have. And, you know, uh, marketing agencies generally, uh, provincial marketing agencies have have you know put all that money into the external market uh, when there was this opportunity in front of us, and I think we moved. I think we had moved too far away from it. So it, I think it taught us that that there's a market here, there's a, a a market that's willing to spend money here, but it also does other things for your province when you have people. Uh, not only exploring it, but kind of rediscovering it, the pride of place that takes place. We've seen new investments. We've seen properties being purchased. So uh, some really positive things. And then the synergy of, of, of supporting each other. You know, So I think there's some positive things came out of that. On the travel deficit, Canada ranks almost uh, in the G7 countries uh, among the worst for the travel deficit. So again, the opportunity for Canada uh, is that if we focus more on encouraging Canadians to explore Canada, um, what a gift that would be for the Canadian economy. Uh, so I think it's something like the, the trade deficit is, or travel deficit is like $30 billion. It's unbelievable how much more Canadians are spending outside their own country versus you know, people that are coming in, et cetera. So it's one of the highest in the, in the developed countries. And uh, so I think that was another lesson from COVID. You know, what can we do? Um, and one of the things Destination Canada did, it did a little modeling and they said, if we could get a third of those people that normally go outside in this first year to stay, the, the number of jobs that would be saved or recreated very quickly and the economic impact was significant. I don't have the figure right in front of me, I should, but I could send that off to you, David, but it was phenomenal. So so some of the things from, from, from COVID, there was some opportunities, I guess, or some, uh, to your point, some um, new, you know, made us think about things differently and that's what COVID should have done. So coming out, we should be saying always, where was the lesson? Is there a way for us to do things different here or better? Not just jump into the same old way we manage things. Uh, and this goes for all parts, I think, of not only our business lives, but, you know, personally, how do we look at things differently in a post-COVID environment? But did COVID for sure helped us realize or maybe brought home to those that were spending the money that there's an opportunity here? Not to say we ignore the export dollars because they're key, but let's take care of those customers. I was talking to some hotel owners and they said they would rather have someone from Atlantic Canada four times a year for a sporting event than just focus on the one, you know, the one international customer because they're filling, they're paying their mortgages, right? They need to run these properties on a year round basis. So we need to get out of this mindset that uh, high yield first time is all that we need. And we need, we need a lot of people coming various times of the year. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely right. It's uh it's easier for somebody from Moncton to travel to Halifax. I know that some people, when they think vacation, Right. Mm -hmm. They think international or they think somewhere else in Canada or some farther afield. But, um, yeah, there's lots of real great opportunities here in our region mm -hmm. to explore. Fox Harbor is a great example. I don't know how many Atlantic Canadians actually um, um, know about or know well. They certainly have heard about the big golf tournaments and so on. But uh, the fact that it is a major, very high end and very uh, uh, impressive tourism destination, I think, is uh, is another example. of. And again, Fox Harbor did used to focus more outside the region and has, as you indicated, done uh, had a lot more success in region uh, mm -hmm. since the pandemic and realized that, yeah, if you can bring people from local markets or regional markets, it's just as lucrative in terms of the dollar values. And because it's easier for folks to travel in, uh, you know, maybe you get them more than uh, more than maybe the international travel. So that's that's a, that's a very interesting observation and glad to see Destination Canada focusing on that as well, because every tourist that doesn't leave Canada to spend their tourism dollars means they're, they're spending it here uh, and creating economic value uh, in our, in our country. Mm -hmm. One of the, um, so yeah, I agree. And it was interesting. I mentioned, we mentioned that one property, but we've heard that at least, I don't know, numerous times by people who said, I had no idea that Nova Scotia had this kind of product. I had no idea that that community existed. And uh, I can't believe I live in a place like this. And those comments can be reflected all over Atlantic Canada. Like when you get to discover, I know when I started with Tyans years ago, it was when I did the grading, it was the first time I got to really explore the province. So I, I was in my early twenties and I was blown away that I lived in this place, you know, and I'm sure everybody else can, but you don't normally get to do that kind of thing, go into all these small communities and um, see the natural environment that exists here and all, all surrounded by, you know, this incredible uh, coast, 
coast that we share. So um, it, it's pretty special. So I think there's some longer term impacts on the psyche of Atlantic Canadians in terms of, um, you know, understanding where they live and what's so precious here. The, the, uh, also, the, uh, the COVID management was a positive in this regard. It kind of connects to it. You know, our brand was heightened in Atlantic Canada. Nova Scotia did a good job. Every province did a good job in their own way. And I think there was a lot of focus on the region because of that. So, you know, hopefully we leveraged that as, and we saw it with the people moving here, you know, during that period of time. But I think from a visitation, uh, the, the attention that's been given to the region, we need to say, how do we leverage this? How do we take advantage of the story that started to be told? Started with the COVID, but then a, a lot of visuals were represented during that time about the place, uh, and how people were taking care of each other, et cetera. So I think uh, there's some opportunities and it's just now's the time to rethink all of this in a very more kind of holistic way because tourism is not just about staying at a hotel or eating at a restaurant it's it's really it really permeates all parts of life and when you think of rural parts of Atlantic Canada you know if you didn't have that tourism infrastructure in those communities you wouldn't have the investment from other sectors like oil and gas etc uh, the wine industry how that's growing I believe we can be you know um capital for the east coast i mean i think we should just take that we should just take that brand and run with it i mean we have incredible product happening here so i mean again post-covid we should be all thinking about how do we do it better we could be the best this region could be the best uh in the in the country so you've mentioned a couple of times now the the link between tourism and population growth and one of the uh -huh. things i've thought um nova scotia's on track this year to probably uh, bring in about 13,000 permanent residents, immigrants, um, mm -hmm. uh, which will be a record by far. Uh, last year was over something like over 8,000 permanent residents admitted to Nova Scotia. Of course, you have tons of international students. I'm wondering if there's any effort from the tourism industry to target immigrants as, a, as an audience, because again, to your point earlier, if they get to see the beauty of Nova Scotia, if they get to see this awesome province that they've decided to make home, maybe that helps with retention. We, you know, this region does have a challenge, somewhat of a challenge with immigrant mm -hmm. retention. Mm -hmm. And I think if they get to see, and we're, you know, I've, I've seen a number of immigrants and I've talked to a number of immigrants that have gotten to know, you know, they've done um, kayaking and they've, you know, in the Fundy and Fundy region and so on. So I guess the question for you is, is that sort of a, a focus as well to try and get our newcomers, whether they're from Ontario or whether they're from around the world to actually spend their tourism dollars in the province? Yeah, you know, that's always really important. Uh, the immigration piece is obviously a part of the, of the labor solution. Um, and obviously, we want people to travel when, when they come here. But it's, it's one piece of it. I think, I think part of the problem is we throw immigration out a lot as the solution, the be all. But then we're not thinking about, you know, who we're going after. The jobs we need, we have a number of operators, and even in the agricultural sector, they have good arrangements in place for temporary foreign workers or the Atlantic immigration pilot. There's still some concerns we have with the process around that and how how we need to be able to get the workers we need, you know, yeah. in terms of certain certain. So there, there's work that needs to happen, but we often talk about um, immigration as the be all end all without looking at what really is happening. And 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 to be honest with you, we in Atlantic Canada, I know Nova Scotia in particular, we have one of the highest per capita uh, unemployment, people detach from the workplace. So we have other issues we need to deal with. Why aren't we able to get the people in rural communities in particular connected to the labor market? Why can't we do a better job at working with the indigenous communities who have a high unemployment, are looking for work, and we, we can't seem to make that uh, rich in a good way? So we have to deal with some other things in context with immigration as well, right? We need to, so from a labor perspective, you know, um, how we're managing workers, how we're defining positions, uh, the packages we're putting in place and understanding the worker of today, including older workers, et cetera. So I think it's a more complex issue than just say increase the numbers and then how, what are we gonna do to keep them in Halifax versus them going to Toronto? So again, it's for our industry, it's making sure um, we have really great examples too of a lot of uh, some of the larger hotels that have done a great job with certain countries because they they work really hard, they want to send their money, you know, they know what they want to do. So making sure that we're getting people in who are going to work in the jobs that we need. Uh, and they're at all levels too. I mean, the pandemic, we lost a lot of people in the management level because I mean, we shut down, people lost their jobs, even though there were some supports in place it kind of shakes your confidence. Like they have families and mortgages and, you know, is this where I want to be? I mean, 
other other companies and businesses got to pivot to home um, or do other uh, models, but we couldn't do that. We people just lost their jobs, you know, entirely. So there's a lot around the immigration, and I just find we we casually throw it out there as a be all end all without looking at the social context of our region. It's very different. Um, I know when we looked at EI, EI reform, uh, there are a number of challenges in Atlantic Canada that are unique to us. And so in terms of building that labor market, we need to we need to look at it a little more holistically, I believe. Uh, it's not just about the numbers. It's about how do you attach them to work when they get here? Um, you know, how do you meet the labor market demands that operators need? And not just for tourism, for other sectors as well. I know the fisheries and agriculture are struggling with this as well. Um, anyway, lots, lots to do, David. Yeah. So I was going to ask you later about labor, but since you raised it, let's, okay. let's discuss labor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I take your point. I think you're absolutely right. If you look at labor market participation, particularly in rural areas, there's, there's seems to be pockets of mm-hmm. uh, lower participation and so on. But as you also pointed out, there's a very high or relatively high use of employment insurance. And I think that it's very difficult uh, under the current system with the current model in place to, to say some to, you know, to try and get somebody to come into a tourism job if they're collecting their seasonal employment insurance checks. So it's a it's I think when you look at the numbers, I think you're right, there should be low hanging fruit there. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure there is. Have you given any thought to how we might be able to unlock some of that labor that's right now sort of tied up in seasonal EI? Yeah, um, we are doing a pilot right now with the Fisheries Sector Council. It's really interesting. And um, two things we're doing. We're, we're working with fishers who whose season is kind of, um, I'd say, the opposite of ours. But is there an opportunity for some of those fishermen to become entrepreneurs in the tourism industry in the off-season with their boats? We're working with Transport Canada. They're retrofitting their boats so to, to create experiences. The interest has been phenomenal. But that's at the owner level. That's one piece of it. The other piece is... What are those tourism or fishing um, harvesters, whatever they are, what are those businesses that traditionally would lay off their labor force? Is there a way for employers and communities to work together to create full-time employment? You know, my belief, and I was on the EI uh, review panel for Atlantic Canada a number of years ago, and we went all around. And, you know, I believe at the heart, people want to be productive and feel good and and having and you know um employment that's meaningful to them and i think we can do that but we need to look at things a little bit differently not accept the status quo uh look at those people that we have in our our shops and is there opportunities uh at the management level they've been there for years that we can move you know so we have to look at this whole thing a little bit differently from a skill set so we are doing some work with other sectors i think it could hold a lot of promise for the, if it worked well to the Atlantic region, Um, you're not going to get everybody, but I think, um, you know, uh, most people uh, are keen to, you know, maybe use their skills in one sector and another sector where it's complementary with some, you know, upgrading, et cetera. So. So I wish you well on that. I think Mm. if we can get there, I think that's going to be good for the region. Um, Mm. I'm a little, you know, concerned the incentives aren't there, but, but I want to ask you like one of the things that differentiates Halifax, which is very, very impressive is it has, among bigger cities, mid-sized and large-sized cities, it has the highest share of, of students, post-secondary mm-hmm. education students, particularly university students in the yeah. country, relative to size. Has there been any effort to try and get some of that large pool of students out into, because students do make up a large share of, uh, I don't know what the actual breakdown is, but they make up a large share of the tourism workforce. Yeah, are, I mean, we, are, we, are we trying to get anybody, Darlene? Are we trying to get those, you know, you know the way Alberta used to attract you know, students from Atlantic Canada in the summer, are we trying to get some of those folks into Parisboro and, and Amherst and these places in, in, in Atlantic Canada? Absolutely. So here's the thing. Tourism plays an important role in society and in the economy because we do provide students particularly and also people looking for part time income, secondary income in their families, that job. Um, and for years, we we kind of shied away from that because it was seen as a negative, like you're part-time, you're entry level, but what an important role that tourism could provide all these jobs to people that are trying to put themselves through school. So absolutely, that's a big part of the base that our industry is interested in. Um, and we're seeing a lot of them, the, a lot of the international students at the Cape Breton University, et cetera, are staying and investing in the community afterwards. So it's certainly uh, definitely already happening. Um, and that's a lot of who we employed in the, in the high season. But we are a year-round industry. You know, there's a lot of product development happening in the winter, a lot of opportunity. What I think we need to do is the West, you're right, you referenced it. Um, For years, they were really good at the experience for young people was I want to go work at a ski resort. 
I want to work, but I want to have an experience and I want to enhance, have a fun time or whatever. We could be doing that. So we're, we're calling it creating a destination for employment. I believe Nova Scotia, Atlantic Canada can be a destination for employment. You think of our vineyards, the, uh, you know, our farms, agritourism, um, we haven't, and that would address a lot of what's happening in rural communities. Also for rural people in rural communities across Canada to come to the urban center of Halifax. So we have to manage that message, right? But I think a campaign around that, um, and we need to be proud of what we can offer, but we need to be that destination for employment in Atlantic Canada that the West kind of started years ago. I don't even know if it was mindful, except they were good at it. Fair amounts and stuff were really good at coming in and doing those career fairs and making it very attractive. But we have more than that. You know, we have year round. And as I said, I would love to work in a vineyard for the summer. I think that would be amazing. We're on a farm and, you know, working farm for the summer. So I think that's a great strategy. When I was in university, I actually spent two summers in Jasper, mm -hmm. Alberta. So and half the people, two thirds of the people working there were not from Alberta. So I think it was right. a good strategy for them. And I think it's we should be doing the same thing. So I applaud you for doing that. Yeah. Just one other thing on on the workforce. Um, we do have a lot of people retiring every year. And there is some discussion about, you know, trying to find ways to get these folks to work in tourism, make a little extra money in the summer and then give them more flexibility if they want to go down south in the winter or have have uh, just have more disposable income. I know there's lots of talk about, you know, clawback of pensions and things like that. There's some trickiness there. But have you have you been looking at the 60, 65 plus workforce as a potential part of the solution? Absolutely. Um, you know, today the number keeps dropping, which is not, I don't really care for that. You know, there's keep saying this love, but you know, a lot of people retire early, a lot of military people, like teachers, healthcare workers, they retire very relatively young. So that's part of it, but also older than that. We're actually launching a campaign here in October um, and it'll be on television and it's commercial. And, you know, exactly what you said, David, our message is that we value what people that we value people uh, as they get older. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of skills in our society that people obviously gain. Um, and in many ways we don't, we just kind of, you know, you see it in the seniors homes, et cetera, but we believe that's an important market for us, not just because we need them, but because there's tremendous amount of emotional intelligence uh, and skill sets. And we think that the message that if you like to golf every day, maybe you could be an instructor for a day, a week or two. So we believe you can take a, an interest you have or a hobby and work in the tourism industry, or maybe you're a retired accountant and you can work for a small business in tourism one day a week or two days a week. Uh, or you were a homemaker and you, uh, you know, made meals for your family or, or, or housekeeping. And maybe you can teach young people how to do it properly. There are national standards, but having a mature person teach that. So there's ways to deal with, maybe I don't want to work hard. I don't want to work too long. I want to pick my hours. And we're saying we, we're very welcome. Um, we want you and we'll work with you. And we believe it could enhance the life of a lot of people that are sitting there trying to, you know, I think COVID taught that people need to be connected to other people and maybe make a little bit of money on the side as it happens. I think that could be a real good thing. So I wanted to just come back quickly in the last few minutes that we have here and talk about mm -hmm. how we can support tourism renewal. What do we need to do? Is it just a matter of better marketing? Do we need more product development? You talked earlier about um, uh, African Canadians and African Americans and sort of making that link the Underground Railroad. And you talked about mm -hmm. Indigenous tourism. So what do we need to do to proactively get that? I mean, 2025, you know, it's it's a little bit of a hard pill to swallow to get us back to 2019 numbers. But we need to, you know, if that's the case, we need to work hard to, to drive those numbers up. So what, what do we need to do? You sent me some notes before our, our discussion here today, it seems you've got quite a bit of um, um, efforts underway to try and build those build those numbers. So, what what are you what do we need to do to get the get those numbers back up in the region? Okay, so 2019, um, you know, 2.6 billion dollars here in the province, and and, uh, and it just um, I still think we were we're more reactive than being proactive. And again, I go back to the message I have think about COVID and that it gave us an opportunity for a rethink and a reset. So not be, being okay with the status quo, I think it could be much more significant than getting back to 2019 numbers, but we have to look at tourism in totality of the economy. And so building it to 365, addressing seasonality, supporting product, winter development, product development is gonna be really key. Um, you know, leveraging marketing efforts. So promoting, I'll say one Nova Scotia, but you could look at this on the Atlantic level as well. And one, one 
uh, one Nova Scotia, one Atlantic approach. And so there's a lot of money being spent in the name of marketing by various destination marketing organizations. I think there could be a lot of improvement in how we approach the whole marketing marketing agenda. You know, transportation, improving access. We talked about air access. We don't have an intermodal strategy. When people come to Atlantic Canada, how they're moving. I told you we have a, a vulnerable motor coach industry coming out of COVID. They're not, that, that system's not only important for residents, but for um, uh, tourists, obviously, as well, in terms of how they move a boat. The cruise industry is growing, but we're not leveraging the economic opportunity with cruise. We get off on the fact that we have 300 cruise ships here in Halifax and Sydney and a few in the rural. But what if we were mindful about it, increased home porting, went after that high yield niche market, four or 500 people into rural communities in a more mindful way, it can't, it can't just be done by the ports. It needs to be a plan by the provinces or the region. And I know there's an association to really say, how do we move the economic needle on this? The destinations across North America that are doing it well have, have made it a, you know, have a return strategy. They do more home porting. They have a levy uh, attached to the customers so they can pay for the marketing. There's ways to look at current investments or current opportunities and getting more out of them. So I think that's, that's a big one. Um, environmental stewardship. You know, Atlantic Canada has a good reputation and brand around that, but I think that can be a big driver for the future as people seek out uh, destinations that take care of the place they live. And we have a lot of natural resources, highest number of Parks Canada per capita in the country. Let's take advantage of some of these things. So, uh, and again, my, my other big one, again, accountability for public investment. If you're going to say this is a tourism investment, we need to put accountabilities around it. How do we, how do we make sure it drives tourism visitation? Uh, what needs to be in place, not just when you're looking to invest the money, you call it a tourism investment, but how do we make it work? A lot of times we funnel money into things and, and that's the end of the story. So there is a lot of work to do. We actually are working with tourism, the government here to look at a new framework for tourism. But I think if the transportation department and the environment department, the tourism department, everybody looks at how things filter from a tourism perspective, we could really leverage the economic spend. I think easily we could get up to $4 billion a year here. Atlantic Canada has the same potential, but my colleagues could share a better perspective on that. Um, there's one of us in each of the Atlantic, you know, every province in Atlantic Canada. Sure. So uh, I'm a big fan of cruise ships. I think there's a couple mm -hmm. of reasons. One, because they do spend money when they, when mm -hmm. they, when they come ashore but the other thing is, if you can if you can get them, it's a very small window. But if you can get them to fall in love with the region, hmm. they may come back in other ways. So not necessarily a cruise; they may visit the region because they want to explore more. So it's almost like you get them to come in and just sort of taste Nova Scotia, taste Cape Breton, you know, just get a just get a glimpse of what the potential is, and then you bring them back for two or three weeks of of full scale tourism. So I'm I'm a big fan. I'm glad you guys are working on that. You mentioned in the notes you sent to me something about. Uh, exporting tourism education. I mm -hmm. love the fact mm -hmm. that Halifax in particular is such a, just such an enormous generator of, of post-secondary education. You know, so many people come to the, to the city to study and they spend a tremendous amount of money on tuition and living in Halifax. But then that talent pool is just an amazing talent pool to try and leverage for Nova Scotia. So what, what did you mean when you say exporting tourism education? We have some of the best tourism programming. We have a community college system that has, you know, high-end tourism programming. We have Cape Breton University that has the World Tourism Institute now. We have uh, the Mount, of course, that has the degree granting program. or had the first, now Cape Breton has one with business. But what we know that's happening across the globe is that um, people that are interested are interested in Canadian papers, particularly in tourism. A lot of the developing countries are looking at tourism as the panacea for their economies. And they're looking for places to send people to get educated and Canadian papers or certifications are, are really big. How do we utilize the fact that we have this high um, quality brand around tourism education and, and use it as an export, either sending our people to train, getting more people to come in around tourism. I think there's a tremendous opportunity there and perhaps using some of our, our resorts that are uh, with in, in conjunction with the with the educational system, some of the resorts that are closed in the winter and rural communities using their facilities, et cetera. There's just an opportunity there. And we know there's an interest and a need. Uh, a number of our operators have talked about their interest in you know partnering with the educational community on it. But again, it heightens the brand of Nova Scotia in terms of that expert. We also run a certification system for tourism in Canada, and we're the certifying body that is, you know, second to none. Countries all over the world are looking to buy it. So we've got these assets 
from an educational perspective and tourism and how do we how do we export and how do we commercialize it um, you know it will have multiple uh, multiple impact so I just wanted to end our, our conversation yeah. today on the subject of entrepreneurship this is another mm-hmm. issue that I study across the region and it's really uh, a concern for me in a number of sectors so if you look at tourism depending on how you define tourism you know 35 to 40 percent of uh, business owners, small business and medium-sized business owners are 55 and older. So they're going to be retiring soon. And we're going to need just a wave of new entrepreneurs in the, you know, in country inns and in restaurants Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, tourism operators and kayak uh, companies Mm -hmm. and all of these, you know, uh, services and, and that are so important to the, to the rural and urban uh, communities across Nova Scotia and across Atlantic Canada. Are you, seeing younger entrepreneurs jumping into the tourism sector are they are they buying out uh, um, older entrepreneurs or there's a succession planning going on like are you concerned where where are you with this concern over are you as, are you as concerned about it as I am or are you not as nervous about the the next 10 years uh, as the older operators uh, retire um I would say prior to the pandemic it was a major area of focus for us in terms of we had businesses that have existed for 20, 25 years. They hadn't been doing a lot of reinvestment. And when your owner operator, you know, in terms of how you positioned the business for sale, wasn't overly attractive. Um, and there was not an appetite, of course, to banks. We have a major issue with banks funding tourism enterprises. Um, and so we've been doing some work in that regard. Then the pandemic happened. And then we had a lot of, all of a sudden, a lot of interest in purchasing of properties. We saw a lot of, I'd say three or four that I know of, five on the Eastern shore that have been purchased uh, by young couples that are coming to live and do here. So I think, again, it reframed the value of living and working in communities where you can control your life. And I, so I think we're in a better place for it, but the, the operators still need a, a help. How do you get it ready? Uh, we've hired um, uh, kind of a couple consultants, accounting firms to work with our operators to help them reposition the business because they, you know, again, it's been their life's really a, a passion in many cases. They have good businesses or they haven't done the right reinvesting. How do they price it? How do they make themselves attractive to uh, to sell and, and obviously for funding for capital investments? So there's a lot around that, David. It's absolutely an issue for Atlanta, Canada. I do think we're in a little better place in that regard because there's so much interest in uh, people coming and living and working here now, you know, so I think it'll be an easier sell, but they still need help getting ready to do it and thinking about it. One of the workshops we did was around family succession because, you know, just because it should happen, maybe it can happen. And so how do you kind of figure that stuff out? So we've meant we're doing some mentoring stuff with operators to figure out, giving them resources they need, the expertise they need to figure out what they should be doing. And they have to do it now for, you know, the next, over the next five years when, when they actually move out of the business. So it's a big issue. I think it's a big issue across the sectors for small, uh, for entrepreneurs. And the thing about tourism, we are, it's 80% of our businesses are owner operator, you know, they have staff, but they, um, it's, it's entrepreneurs, people that have come into the business, you see the large operations and you think, oh, they're big and they represent a lot of the room nights and accommodation, but it doesn't represent the majority of the businesses. Yeah, that's right. I agree with that. Most of the owners in the, so there's a few large anchors like yeah. Fox Harbor and we love it. We, we but, but the, but the bulk of players are smaller and medium sized businesses. Mm-hmm. Just, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but would it be safe to say that on average, these tourism assets would be lower priced than say, if you were going to buy that same asset in Ontario? I mean, again, again, what is the case for these people moving here to buy these tourism businesses? Are they reasonably Absolutely. I mean, we know that we know that I mean, people could sell the property in Ontario and, uh, you know, buy a couple homes down here, etc. So but I do think there's a renewed understanding of the value. We don't tend to value what we have here the same way. Obviously, you always, we always associate it with what will, people are willing to pay. But there's an intrinsic value in life here and um, and in the kind of businesses that we have. So I think you're going to that's shifting a little bit, David, but absolutely people saw value. I mean, um, that's why so many, so much of our coast is being purchased up and so much, so many of those, those businesses have been purchased or home. So, um, hopefully Nova Scotians now will start to see that for themselves. You know, a lot of people that live in these communities, I heard of one operator doing a phenomenal thing down in Lunenburg and her neighbor, she runs a beautiful, I'd say in more than a bed and breakfast. It's about eight rooms and the, her neighbor's daughter and son-in-law are kind of trying to get their 
their life together. They have a couple of kids and they wanted to move back to the area. So instead of selling it for so much more than she could, she's working out something with them because they're connected to the region. They want to live here. And I thought, once it's all done, I'm going to tell the story. But what a beautiful story of kind of, you know, supporting that next generation. And hopefully some of that will happen because some people, times you don't think you can do it. You're a young person in the community. Maybe you admired that accommodation or that in. Maybe there's some way that you can make it work for you because the way, you know, the pricing is still affordable and compared to a lot of other places. So, Darlene, um, um... You told us earlier on you've been in the industry quite a long time. You you hmm. indicated that you've been around quite a while. Um, how optimistic are you these days? Are you are you uh, very uh, optimistic that things are going to turn around and we're going to it's going to be a, a decade of growth in tourism, or are you very nervous, or are you somewhere in the middle? Just let's end our conversation today of getting a sense of where you're at in terms of your optimism for tourism in Nova Scotia and across the region. Sure, I feel strongly. Um, it's funny, I've been asked this question a little bit lately about kind of, you know, being energized to do what you do, et cetera. And I, I, I'm blown away, really. And part of it is the resiliency of what of the people around us. Um, and because you're surrounded by entrepreneurs and people that always see, you know, that glass half full, it's, it's, uh, it's energizing. But I think we're at an incredible crossroads. So we feel we have government on side to look at this thing very differently. I think operators have a different mindset. Um, I think people are living, uh, maybe not taking everything uh, for granted like they have in the past and a little more open to doing things. So I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic and I'm energized by it. And I think people that tend to do well in the sector or even work in association life, um, you kind of you're driven by maybe challenges, but also you feed off the energy around you. So I think I think we in Atlantic Canada have an incredible opportunity and we've never we've never done it. All we ever usually talk about is marketing the region. We've never really said, let's really make Atlantic Canada the you know the destination in, in Canada, North America, but in Canada in particular. And let's 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 put our you know our flag in the ground on this one and and think about these broader issues that are being conversations are being had anyway. So I'm incredibly, I tend to be that way anyway. I gotta go till I know for sure I can't win, but I'm incredibly optimistic about what we can do. And we haven't done it ever. And and COVID's given us uh, this window, I was at a, an Indigenous conference, and um, I felt this way, but one of the elders was saying that as well, that, you know, if we don't stop to take stock of things, you've missed it, you've missed the opportunity. And that's the gift in COVID, terrible, horrific disease. But there, there are gifts that come out of these things. And so I believe from a tourism perspective, if we take it, the sky's the limit. Darlene, thank you for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. Thank you, David. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.